Hello, everyone, and welcome to this week's episode of The View from Venus. My name is Mary Churchill, and on today's episode, I am joined by co-hosts Meg Palladino and Lee Scalarup-Bissette and guest expert Jesse Daniels, professor of sociology at Hunter College and the Graduate Center, City University, New York. In today's episode, we'll be talking with Jesse about disrupting white supremacy and advancing racial literacy on campus, the relationship between free speech and hate speech, and what role institutions can play when faculty are attacked by the far right. You will walk away with our best tips and advice for advancing racial literacy on your campus. And as always, at the end of the episode, we'll have a recommended assignment for you. Jesse Daniels is a faculty associate at the Harvard Berkman Klein Center and a professor of sociology at Hunter College and the Graduate Center CUNY. She is an internationally recognized expert in internet expressions of racism. In 2019, Daniels launched a consultancy, Public Scholars LLC, designed to help faculty who aspire to be public scholars achieve their goals and work with university administrators who want to assess and respond to attacks from the far right against their institutions. We asked Jessie to join us on The View from Venus because we wanted to hear more about her work in advancing racial literacy and disrupting white supremacy in academia. So, okay, today's question is, when you're having a bad day, what do you do to make yourself feel better? I eat chocolate. And I'm doing, I'm eating chocolate right now. <laughs> that is my solution to everything. If I'm not, if I'm like, oh, I'm kind of cranky or what we say in my house is wearing the cranky pants. I am like, I think I need some chocolate. <laughs> Meg, what do you do? I usually call my dad or one of my good friends and whine to them a little bit and go to bed early if I can. Nice. I uh, watch um, reruns of sitcoms. I watch, and uh, I don't want to call it trash TV, but I'll be like, what are some of my favorite like comfort food TV shows that I like? And depends on how, what kind of bad day it is will like dictate what kind of show that I'm going to, that I'm going to watch, but I'll just, you know, it's almost like rereading a good book in a certain way too. It's just, I, I need to, I need to escape someplace familiar, but not here. Yeah. I, I have lots of different strategies, but I think the, um, most recently what I've done is, um, put on uh, music that reminds me of being with people when we're happy and dancing, that sort of thing, and just have my own little dance out party. And my favorite go-to tune the last few days is um, a tune from several years ago by Gnarls Barkley um, called Crazy, which I just love. Oh, I don't know, I there's something about the vibe of that song where it's just like, yeah, okay, yeah. it's all going to be fine. Yeah, music's yeah. a great mood changer. Yeah. Yes. Yeah, that's that's a good one too. And I love Crazy. The like the first time I heard that song, I knew there was something special about it. I was like, oh, oh, it's such a great hook. So yeah. great. Yeah. Um, all right. So uh, transitioning into the <laughs> more yeah. formal question. Um, uh, and we'll all keep these strategies in mind perhaps after we have this conversation. <laughs> yeah, <really>. uh, <laughs> uh, but not not to make light, but it is it, yeah. um it is important. So in your work, you write about disrupting white supremacy. And I've always loved um, that in your writing and, and especially your writing online and, and on Twitter is that it's, uh, it's about disrupting white supremacy. Mm -hmm. So what does it mean to disrupt white supremacy? And what are some ways to do it that effectively within uh, the confines of higher education? And also relatedly, what are some effective ways of advancing racial literacy on campus and who's doing this well? Yeah. Well, I think that, um, that, you know, this is such a great question and one that I think about a lot. Um, so thanks for having me on and for asking this question. 
to me, disrupting white supremacy is really what I've devoted my life to. And it's a very difficult thing to try and do. Um, and I'll just, I'm just going to tell one very quick story, which I don't know how many of you on this um, know this, but I um, changed my name, both my first and my last name, um, once I was an adult and sort of had was sort of between graduate school and writing my first book and realized a couple of things. One, that my uh, grandfather had been in the Klan, which I didn't know when I first started writing a book and a dissertation on the Klan. Um, and I also began to understand how white women were implicated in uh, white supremacy. Um, and I, I wanted to distance myself from my family's legacy of white supremacy and and from my own kind of complicity in the system. So I changed my name. I was born Suzanne Harper and I changed it to Jesse Daniels after Jesse Daniel Ames, who started something called the Association of Southern Women for the Prevention of Lynching. Um, so that said, I mean, I sort of tell that story to say, you know, this is what I've dedicated my life to. Yeah. Um, and to also say it's a really difficult thing to do. So. I changed my name and white supremacy continues, right? Unabated right. Um, by my name change. Um, and part of why it's so difficult, right, is that, that white supremacy is the system that automatically ensures that white people get and keep all the advantages in society and are culturally associated with being the best, the smartest, the most attractive. All that stuff is really deeply entrenched and so it's not a thing that you can change overnight, just like I changed my name, or with a simple one, two, three step program. It actually takes generational work. And we, meaning those of us included in this group called white people, are way before the beginning of figuring out how to do this kind of generational work. And when it comes to higher education, if you read work like historian Craig Wilder's wonderful Ebony and Ivy about race, slavery, and the Ivy League schools, you can see how white supremacy is, is embedded. It's built into the very fabric of our institutions. So just to bring it to really practical terms for anyone who's listening to this, who's ever sat on an admissions or a hiring committee, you've no doubt witnessed how this operates. Um, in conversations about excellence or standards or even cultural fit. Whether, or quality. Yes, quality, exactly. Favorite one. Right. Whether we're talking about students that we're admitting or faculty that we're hiring, right, those kinds of um, terms, that kind of rhetoric gets used to see how well people are going to help, you know, continue to per perpetuate that system. And back to your really good question about what are the effective ways of of advancing racial literacy on campus and who's doing this well, I really want to point to um, someone who's doing fabulous work in this area, and that's Tricia Matthew and her book, Written Unwritten, which is a, a wonderful edited volume about, you know, what it takes to gain, you know, get hired and gain tenure and promotion in these institutions that are so steeped in white supremacy for faculty of color. Um, and you know, in terms of like how, okay, so there's a book on it. How does that translate to actual institutions of higher ed? Here at my institution at Hunter College, one of our deans on campus actually assigned that book to Excellent. a bunch Excellent. of people on campus, like including the chairs of departments. And we had reading circles, you know, like working through that book in each department. I mean, it hasn't, you know, it's not a perfect campus. We haven't solved all our problems, but I think that's a really great example, both her book and then the practice of 
you know, getting together on campuses and reading it and working through it and saying, you know, face to face with each other, how does this play out on our campus? Did this happen here? How can we uh, do better? That's excellent. I just recommended that a, a few others as well um, to our EDI committee within our college as they asked for suggestions for readings and that was my top one. <laughs> ah, great. And I haven't read it yet, but I'm like, this is something we all need to read. <laughs> yeah. And I should also say we invited um, uh, Professor Matthews, Trisha, she's a friend, uh, to come to campus and give a talk. And that was really well received and she's fantastic and please invite her and, and to assigning her book. So okay. she's great. Great. So Jesse, many campuses seem to be struggling with the line between free speech and hate speech. And what are your thoughts on this? Yeah, I, I appreciate this question, and I think it's a bit of a trap um, seeing these two as opposed to each yep, other. Yep. I mean, in some ways, I think it really reflects a very um, U.S.-based idea about what free speech is, to see it as as uh, on the other end of a continuum from hate speech. Yep. Um, and my research, for my second book, I, I looked at um, white supremacy online, and, and in doing that work, looked at sort of how white supremacy and hate speech kind of um, has expanded or was at that time beginning to expand globally. And what that led me to was really different notions about free speech and hate speech outside the US and in almost every other country, um, you know, Western industrialized country, there are very different notions of these things. And there's a way in which people like, for example, in the EU see hate speech as something that, um, let me back up, that people in the EU see free speech as certainly an important value in a democracy, but they also see the value of people's human rights to dignity and life and to not being, not being harmed or threatened with harm as also important. So I think for me, the place that I would encourage people on campuses to think about these, these issues is to begin to think in terms of harm. Who's being harmed by the kind of speech and speech events that we invite onto our campus, right? Rather than thinking, is there some abstract principle, our very peculiar US notion of free speech, is that being harmed if we invite someone to campus or don't invite them? But instead, are there people, actual human beings, our students, other faculty, people that work at our colleges and universities, is there a way that they could be harmed by the kind of speech um, that we're inviting onto our campuses? So I think it's very possible to imagine a world in which we both value free speech as an important democratic value and value people's human right to dignity, to life, to being free from harm or the threat of harm. I love that framework of harm. I think that that's, we don't put that front and center enough on our campuses, right? It's um, absolutely, it's it, almost it, ideas without people. Yeah, exactly. It's this very, um, you know, kind of traditional enlightenment notion of these abstract principles which, you know, if you read, um, you know, work like David Theo Goldberg's wonderful racist culture, you know that those enlightenment notions carried with them, yeah. you know, racialized embodied beings, you know, so it's not that, that we can just have these abstract discussions minus people's lived experience. We have to put that lived experience into conversation with what our values are. Yep, and front and center. So I think that uh, the rise of EDI committees, equity, diversity, and inclusion committees yep. on campus is kind of, 
exponentially uh, grown. And so, and I, and overall, I think that's a good thing, but I think there are a lot of challenges. I feel like ironically, but then not because the structures are very white, as we mm -hmm. talked about white supremacy, yeah. Yeah. a lot of this work has traditionally been done by white folks on campuses, yeah. right? And so there is, uh, and I wrote kind of in this question, we have seen many of our white colleagues completely screw this up. And so, um, and, and I've seen that time and a time again at different institutions and they're well-meaning folks, but this, it, it really made some major mistakes. So, any words, wisdom, or advice on this kind of, as we grow this, these spaces on campus, how to successfully navigate that? Yeah, I mean, I think what, what's really kind of at the root of this question, to my mind, is really about the, the problem of white liberals, because these, these, are, these are the folks that are on those committees, and that's the kind of, you know, your phrase, that's the kind of screw up that we see over and over again. It's like, well, I didn't intend any harm, right, but but you caused harm. So, so I think that the, the process is really, um, it, I mean, to my mind, it's really the phrase that you used earlier, this idea of racial literacy is really what's needed. And I, and I think that that's such a important shift to talk about racial literacy within this conversation of equity, diversity, and inclusion, because yeah, okay. I feel like, um, and I've written a little bit about this in the tech world, but the I mean, you could totally do a find and replace with tech and higher ed. Higher ed. <laughs> it's the same kind of situation. Just like, what's your domain? You know, like, yeah, exactly. but, but, I, but to me, I think there's a way in which we have gotten uh, sort of stuck in this cul-de-sac, I call it, of talking about bias and implicit bias. And, you know, and there's fabulous work that researchers have been doing for, you know, 20 years now on implicit bias. And I respect that research. But I think in terms of transformation, in terms of institutions, industry, organizations, institutions of higher learning, to just stop at the conversation about implicit bias leaves us at a dead end. We, what do you do with that? Once you've figured out that, that your biases are deeply embedded, you know, some people even use the phrase hardwired, once you figure that out, you know, people just stop and kind of throw up their hands and go, well, it's hardwired, what can we do? And I think the important shift with racial literacy, that term, and that there's a whole set of scholarship behind that as well, is that it puts the onus on the people who need to have the burden, which is those of us in that category of whiteness, and especially right. white liberals, who need to really educate themselves about what the problem is and what needs to be done. And frankly, part of racial literacy, to my mind, is sometimes about stepping back. You know, white women especially have been given this message that, yes. that we need to lean in Pache's, Sheryl uh, Sandberg, and lots of other white feminists like that. But I think that really the, the thing that has to happen for transformation is for white women and white men to step back, you know, and, and open space for uh, people of color of all genders to take the lead in institutions. And I think that that's really the uh, difficult challenge. And I think that part of the, the reason that things don't change is be because people don't want to face that reality. And I think that part of racial literacy is kind of, um, you know, it's a scaffolding. It's a way to get to that conclusion. But I think that's ultimately where it leads is, oh, we've got to step back. I agree. It, it feels like a, a on and off switch rather than how do you, you know, like you said, scaffold into it. Yeah. And, I, and I do yeah. think that's great. Um, thank you. Yeah. Uh, you've written um, as well that when the far right attacks faculty online and elsewhere, that they're really attacking public higher education. 
but there are so many attacks on education these days. Why are these types of attacks more egregious and, and why should we be paying closer attention um, to them? And, and then how should we in our institutions respond to it? Yeah, this is such a great question and I really, really appreciate it. Uh, to me, this is, this is actually uh, one of the biggest issues facing higher education right now, uh, both faculty you know, uh, frontline scholars and academic leaders, deans, provosts, presidents. And I see this as really a great vulnerability that the far right is exploiting. And, and they're very skillful ex at exploiting this. And it's really part of a decades long campaign to undermine higher education because it's, it's so central to democracy and they see a threat in democracy. Um, and so part of what happens is you know, just to go back to your question, why are these attacks, uh, types of attacks more egregious and why should we pay attention? Well, first of all, you know, I was attacked by the far right online in uh, fall of 2017. And part of what I can tell you about being in that experience is that it's, it's very overwhelming. I was able to survive it because I had a lot of social support, good healthcare, I'm a member of a union, a faculty union at my institutions. So I knew that I wasn't going to lose my job. But I, but I think that for people who are vulnerable in other ways, either personally or professionally or institutionally, that kind of attack that, and I got thousands of emails over six weeks through multiple email addresses, as well as on Twitter, as well as on Facebook, it just becomes a trauma. I mean, there's really no other word to describe it. Right. And that kind of trauma is destabilizing individually, like it can harm someone's yeah. mental health. But it's also the point of it is to get other people at your institution and society more broadly to sort of question, well, what's the value of higher education? You know, and that's part of a, a, a campaign as well you know, that uh, my friend and colleague, Tressie uh, McMillan-Cottom has written about, about the shift in higher education from a public good to a commodity. Well, what, what are we paying all this money for? What are we getting out of this? And, and a lot of the attacks that I got were, well, why do you get a, a salary supported by the taxpayers, right? It was really at this, what's the value of what you do kind of attack. And so, so that to me is, what, is part of what I'm saying about why these attacks are so concerning is because it's not just about me or something that I said. It's really about, you know, what's going on with higher education and shouldn't we get rid of it? Um, and that, if you look sort of more globally, is, is one of the, the first wedges in, you know, fascist or authoritarian regimes. Like first they come, first they come for the sociologist, you know, and then it's the rest of the <laughs> academics, like all the people with yeah. the classes and the books. <laughs> right. So I think, so I think it's a, it's a harbinger of, of what else is going on. Now added to that, we're in this moment where, you know, because of digital technology, so many of us are kind of public scholars by default. And, and that brings with it all these kind of unintended consequences that, frankly, both faculty and academic leaders are just, you know, caught flat-footed about how to deal with, yes. you know, um, because our work is, is more public now and our um, information is more public. We just don't have the skills for dealing with that. And institutions particularly are not equipped to deal with those. So, for example, when I started getting threats through my email, there was no mechanism on my campus, and my campus is not unusual in this way, but there was no mechanism on my campus for the people who control my email on campus, the IT people, to talk to campus security. There's no 
conversation between them. So just really quickly, I'm just gonna put in a little plug here at the end. I really think that we need to get skilled up on these attacks on faculty, and that's why I'm launching this new venture called Public Scholar Academy. And it's to provide uh, training both to faculty and to oh, academic excellent. leaders in these issues. So. Oh, that's excellent. Oh. Okay, we're gonna wrap up yep. because we're almost out of time, but um, takeaways related to disrupting white supremacy on campus. I would say mine is get my college to read Trisha Matthews' book and yes. bring her to campus. <laughs> that is, that's my takeaway. Excellent takeaway. I mean, I think my campus has a fair amount to do in this area, but I also know that there are good people working on it. I like what you said about stepping back and letting, you know, other people, people of color, mm -hmm. talk and do things. Yeah, um, I, I feel really fortunate to work at a place like Georgetown where we are doing the slavery and reconciliation. Mm -hmm. um, our students just voted on um, repatriations mm -hmm. uh, for the descendants of the uh, slaves who were sold in order to save Georgetown. Mm -hmm. um, and there's, a, you know, we're doing careful work around this. There's a lot of work obviously to be done, but it's, um, it's at the forefront of conversations, it's at the forefront of the conversations that we're doing in our teaching and learning centers. And so I think that, you know, we all have roles as faculty and staff to keep moving these to, to promote, uh, say, racial literacy and, and these issues. So great. Sounds great. Thank Excellent. you so much. Thank you so much. You. Uh, okay, listeners, here's this week's assignment. Find out if your institution has an office or committee focused on advancing racial literacy on your campus. See what they're up to and share your story with us on Instagram, Twitter, or Facebook and tag us at UVenus and we'll retweet, share in our story, and post on Facebook. As always, thanks for joining us and we'll be back next week with Sherry Spielich talking about listening as a form of resistance.